There's a lot in 1 Peter 4, so we're going to do our best to, to cover it, but uh, don't judge me if I don't get, get it all done. It's, it's a lot, and I don't want to rush through it to the point that we uh, are not understanding what we're reading. The overall, overall idea of 1 Peter chapter 4, as I see it, is that Peter is giving us a Christian attitude. He's, he's contrasting the attitude of Christ with the common attitude that is in the world today. And uh, his world, there, there were a lot of differences, but a lot of similarities, I think you will agree. As you see this, you see that the early Christians were struggling with the same sorts of things we struggle with. So let's look at this together and notice there are two basic perspectives. There is a naturalistic point of view, which doesn't believe in God, that sees everything in the world as all there is. If you can't detect it with your eyes and ears, it doesn't exist. That's the naturalistic point of view. Peter presents the spiritual point of view. And from the spiritual point of view, there is a God and we've been made in his image. He has commandments that if we follow them, we will please him, our lives will be better, and we will inherit eternal life. And uh, while it's not a comprehensive discussion of this spiritual point of view, Peter does cover a lot of ground on this and challenges us to be lights in a world that's very different from us. So let's look at the points of this spiritual perspective, this attitude toward life. And notice the first four verses, number one, it has to do with living in purity. Living in purity. Let's read the first two verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of, of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now no, notice there in verse 1, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He is presenting us with a new attitude, and, and that's simply the attitude of Christ. It might remind you of Paul's words in Philippians 2.5, have this mind in you, or have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He wants us to have the same way of thinking as Christ. And as we look at it, we see that this attitude can bring suffering. Now, suffering is a major theme of 1 Peter. From the beginning, from chapter 1, this is something that he has been talking about quite a bit. And one of the reasons that we suffer, according to Peter here, is because we've done away with sin. And uh, we've tried to lead lives of purity. Uh, Jesus suffered for being himself, and he said, if you follow in my steps, don't think that you're going to be an exception. You're going to suffer just the way I did. The world is going to treat you the same way it has treated me. And so it's something that we should expect, and, and, Paul, and Peter rather later on will say, don't be surprised that you're facing trials because this is a logical expectation for people who live so differently from the world. Uh, in fact, he seems to suggest in verse 1 that suffering is proof of a life of purity. 
It's, it's evidence that you're trying to live as Christ lived. Look at it again. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So those who have this spiritual perspective are going to suffer. Now he fleshes this out a little bit more in verses 3 and 4, listing some of the sinful practices of the day. And you'll see they're not all that different from what we have in our world today. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's using the term Gentiles here uh, to refer to non-Christians. We're accustomed to it, to using the term ethnically to refer to non-Jews. But he's speaking of the term in a spiritual, figurative way, non-Christians, doing what they want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Young people deal with this a lot, but so do adults. When you don't get yourself involved with the ways of the world, there are two reactions that you should expect. The first is surprise. You know, why wouldn't you want to be involved in this party? Why wouldn't you want to have premarital sex? Why wouldn't you want to engage in the lusts of the flesh? I mean, this is what our bodies are telling us to do. This is what is pleasurable. This is what the world says makes you important. This is what will make you popular. There's surprise and a lack of understanding there to those who don't know Christ. And that surprise, Peter says, will be followed with, you, you will be maligned. Ridicule. Persecution. And Peter's not really talking about the kind of persecution that we normally think of from the first century. Imprisonment and death, those kinds of things. He's, he's talking to the kind of persecution that we feel today when we don't fit in when we don't engage in the kind of behavior the world engages in. You look at this list he gives us in verse 3. It's pretty familiar, right? Sensuality, that's lasciviousness, uh, uh, a depraved attitude towards sex. Um, a lot of things are involved in, in that. Uh, drinking parties, passions, drunkenness, orgies. Even lawless idolatry is a problem today. If you think of idols as anything that you put before God, and there are all kinds of things, wealth and popularity and power that people put before God. And so we live in this same world, and the world is shocked and surprised at us, and then they mock us, they malign us. So living in purity... That's the first perspective. And it will draw a reaction, a negative reaction from the world. All right, as we move through this, we look at a second part of this attitude. And that is living with the end in view. It's something else very different from the world that has its mind only on the present and doesn't think about the consequences of its actions. But here, Peter is saying there are consequences and everyone is going to answer to God. Look at verses 5 through 7 of 1 Peter 4. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. All right, there's some kind of difficult things in there, but first we want to point out the overall point is that life is headed somewhere and all of us are going to be judged at the end of time. World religions, uh, the Stoicism of Peter's day, Hinduism over in the East, a lot of these have the idea that time is cyclical, that there's reincarnation, that there's an impersonal God, and, and we're not headed anywhere. Life is just this circle that repeats itself over and over and over again. But Christianity has a very different point of view. Christianity says history is linear. We're all headed to the same direction. And that's the end of time, the second coming, judgment day, and the resurrection. And all of that will come at some time that God has appointed that we don't know. We don't know. So we need to be ready for it at all times. Now, let's look at some of these difficult statements that are, that are said here. One is in verse 6. What did Peter mean saying that the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead? Three possible explanations. Uh, some argue that uh, this is a link to what Peter said in chapter 3, verse 19. When I was asking Will what he covered last week, he said most of chapter 3, and I said, oh, well, you talked, you settled the whole question about the spirits in prison in verse 19. He said, no, I moved over that part pretty quickly. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to go back to that part, but some people connect chapter 4, verse 6 to what was said in chapter 3, verse 19, where it says Christ uh, in the spirit went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Uh, there's an idea that that has to do with purgatory, that Christ went down and preached to the condemned spirits in Hades who had lived during the days of Noah and had been drowned in the flood and gave them a second chance. Uh, and this is really what I was thinking about when I said there are three explanations. That's the first explanation of that. The second explanation is that he went down to those spirits in prison and he proclaimed victory through the cross over their sinfulness. Not giving them a second chance, but going down into Hades to those who are being tormented and basically saying... I have had victory over death and I'm about to be resurrected and uh, give all those who believe in me hope. The third possibility, and this is what I believe, is that this is a reference to the Spirit preaching through Noah in the days of Noah. There's nothing here that says this occurred in the time of Jesus' death and burial. Uh, you can read this and, and see that he's talking about preaching that occurred in the days of Noah, uh, through the Spirit, to the people who died in the flood, who are now spirits in prison. 
All that being said, I don't think that's what Peter's referring to in chapter 4, verse 6. Read it again where it says, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. It was preached past tense to those who are present tense dead. So when they were alive, it was preached. Now they are dead. Though they were judged in the flesh... Look at the context here. They were maligned for obeying the gospel. He says that uh, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So these were not evil people because they live in the spirit the way God does. And they're alive uh, after death, uh, being comforted in the afterlife. Uh, I don't know if that's making any sense, but... These are deceased Christians. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, Verse 7 presents another difficulty. Look at that. Another difficulty is that he refers to the end of all things as being near or, depending on your translation, at hand. So people worry that perhaps Peter thought that the Lord's return was... um, going to be imminent any minute now uh, that he believed within his lifetime Jesus would return. And the problem with that is we're 2,000 years later now. So if the Apostle Peter believed that uh, the Lord was coming back within days or weeks or months, he was mistaken. And so if he was mistaken about that, which is a big deal, how can we trust him on anything else? Well, there are a lot of passages like this. Paul said things like this as well in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. He said, the Lord is at hand. Um, James said something like this in James chapter 5, verse 8, that the end is at hand. And at hand is a figure of speech. And you have to look at the context to understand it. And by context, I mean Peter was there when Jesus said, no one knows the time of the coming of the Son of Man. Not the angels in heaven, not even the Son. Somehow Jesus was saying, I don't have that information right now. But only the Father. This is Mark 13, 32 and following. Peter was there. He heard that and he understood that. And so we can't take that to mean that he believed Jesus was coming back at a certain time, that he knew when Jesus' return was coming. You get into 2 Peter chapter 3, he says the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night, meaning it's going to come without any announcement. There's no appointment made, no schedule, except what is in God's own mind. It will come suddenly. So it's not imminence, it's immediacy. That's the word. It could be any moment now. It could be before I finish this lesson, and it will come immediately, suddenly, quickly. There's not going to be a lead up to it. There's not going to be time for you to make changes in your life to avoid the punishment that is coming to those who are outside of Christ. And the idea here is the Lord is at hand. He could come any minute now. So if there's some change you need to make in your life, you should make it now. Live with the end in mind. That's a 
That's a perspective that the world doesn't have. That's the second part of this attitude that Peter is preaching about here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. All right? So uh, let's get into verses 8 through 11. And verses 8 through 11 gives us another part of this Christian attitude. And that part is living for others. Not putting yourself first, but putting others first. Now again, you see a huge contrast between the Christian attitude and the attitude of the world. So let's take these verses one at a time, starting with verse 8. In verse 8, he describes this unselfish lifestyle in terms of love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's beautiful how he describes love covering a multitude of sins. You're familiar with the numerous exhortations to love one another throughout the New Testament. Uh, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Jesus says, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the badge of discipleship, the way people know we are of Christ, is the way we love one another. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that in this discussion of the Christian attitude, we see something about love. But what does Peter mean when he says love covers a multitude of sins? Some people have struggled with that. That's another difficulty in the text. Read it again. He says, verse 8, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, does that mean that all you need is love? The gospel plan of salvation is we love each other and God forgets about sin. Does that mean there's no need for repentance? Does that mean there's no need to confess your sins? Does that mean there's no need for uh, someone who's lost to be baptized? Does this erase all the conditions for salvation? Some people will go to this verse. They'll say, see right here, love is all you need. Love covers a multitude of sins. Well, there is a passage that somewhat has that meaning using the same language, and that's James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Turn over there and look at that, since it does use the same kind of language. James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. So here's the condition. Someone has wandered away. This is a Christian who has sinned in such a way that he has wandered away. He's lost. He's fallen from grace. But a brother or sister brings him back through the second law of pardon, shows him the way back, convinces him to repent, uh, to pray for forgiveness. James says, let him know, let the person who brings him back, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now here, save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins are parallel statements. Cover a multitude of sins explains what save his soul from death 
does. So here, it's about salvation from sin. Peter's speaking in a different context in 1 Peter chapter 4. He's talking about loving one another and what loving one another requires. You don't see the, con the, the context of salvation here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. So yes, it's the same figure of speech covering a multitude of sins, but Peter's not giving qualifications uh, for being saved. He's talking here about forbearance and uh, how hard it is to love one another. If you're going to commit to a life of love, you're going to have to overlook a lot of wrongs. You have to forgive. You have to accept that it's not always going to be fair for you. And, and people have a hard time believing that. They, they think they want love, and they think they want to love. Well, I love everybody. But you're tested on that when people are irritating, when they're obnoxious, when they're hurtful, when they say the wrong things, when they slander you, when you find out they've been talking behind your back. And even after they say, I'm sorry, you kind of have this mind, mindset of, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He hurt me one time, he will never hurt me again because I'm not covering that sin up. I'm keeping a record of that and I'll bear that grudge to my grave. Loving one another is a very hard thing to do. That's what Peter's trying to say. It's not just have a good feeling about people all the time. It's do the hard work of forgiving and forbearing. It's not easy. And uh, we like to confuse it and bring up exceptions like, well, what if they don't repent? Do I forgive them then? And I think that's an important discussion. But if that comes up every time we talk about forgiveness, then maybe we're just making excuses and not doing the hard work of covering a multitude of sins. Because you'll notice that the work here is done by the one who loves. It's the love that covers the multitude of sins. And so it's about letting some things go and giving it to God. You can forgive somebody and have in your mind, if this person needs to be dealt with, God will deal with this person. But I don't have to carry this around with me. I don't have to be bitter for the rest of my life. Does that make sense? Understand? Okay, so it's very challenging. James. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Charity 400 years ago just meant love in general. That word has evolved in English to mean something very specific. When we see charity today outside of the King James Version, we automatically think of giving money to a cause. But it's more general than that. It's about Christian love putting another person before yourself. Now, it can include what we know as charity, but includes so much more than that, like 
forgiveness was one application I was making. So that's a good question. Yeah. Uh-huh. Fervent charity. Okay. Fervent. So in my translation, fervent was covered by the word earnestly. Earnestly. So I don't know if that's very helpful, but uh, keep loving one another earnestly for love covers a multitude of sins. Fervent and earnestly are synonyms there. That means working hard at it, being enthusiastic about it, being committed to it. I think that's what fervent charity is. Not just occasional charity, but this is your lifestyle. This is who you are, how you identify. This is your overall attitude. Were you about to say something, Jim? If you couldn't hear that, Jim makes a good point. The passage in James connects here in that before you're going to bring a sinner back from, the, from his wandering, you have to love that soul. You have to love a soul to go to him and say, look, the way you're living is putting you on the wrong path. If you don't change course, you're going to spend an eternity away from God in everlasting punishment. You need to repent and that, that love will drive you to do that, which can be very hard sometimes. And so I, I think that's good. They're, they are connected, although cover a multitude of sins means different things in, in those two different contexts. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, you bring up something I, I bet a lot of people in this room can relate to. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is what happens if you, you try to, to get reconciliation with a person who's wronged you and you say, look, let's make this right. I'm willing to forgive you. Can, can you admit this wrong? Can we move forward? Can we have a relationship with one another together? And they say something like, look, I never did anything to you. I don't know what you're talking about. You need some help. Uh, and you just can't repair the relationship. One thing we need to understand is reconciliation requires two people. And you only have control of yourself. I mean, you, you can forgive somebody in, in terms of not harboring that feeling for the rest of your life and letting that bitterness drive you and ruin you spiritually, but you can't force that other pe person to do what's right. And so I, I don't think it's wrong, Bill, 
if you come to a point where you say, I've tried everything I can, and I'm going to have to move forward without this person. I'm going to have to move forward without this relationship. Uh, Because you've done what you can, you can't force the other person to do what's right. Am, Am I in the neighborhood of what you're asking there? Is that kind of the situation you're talking about? Yeah, okay. Mark. Yeah, it's about letting it go. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah. Seventy seven times seventy. And Peter <laughs> what did Peter say? How how often should I forgive my brother seven times? And he says, seven times seventy. And he didn't mean four hundred and ninety, right? He he meant unlimited. Um, But again, that doesn't automatically create reconciliation. Someone has said forgiveness takes one person, reconciliation takes two. So I think Bill's talking about reconciliation, which is impossible with only one person. Yes? Yes, sometimes you're giving that person what they want. They want you to hurt. They want you to harbor a grudge. They want you to suffer. And uh, the thing that will really get to them is by showing that you can move on in love. And you can move on without them if they don't want to join you. And, and you don't have to be hurt by that, that wrong in the past. And that's what the end of Romans 12 is talking about when he says, um, uh, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Those are the coals of kindness. Yeah, Mark. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, go, go above and beyond. Right, this is the attitude we're talking about here. This is love, and it's, it's really challenging, really challenging. This next one is challenging as well, and y'all may have some things to say about this one. Verse 9, remember we're talking about living for others, and the first way we live for others is love. Verse 9 is offering hospitality. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, showing hospitality is attending to somebody's need. And uh, it's connected to your home. But I I think it's fair to say that the world has changed a little bit in how we run our homes. Uh, For example, they didn't have hotels back then. There were inns here and there, but it was a different situation than today. Travel was long and arduous. Uh, You would go through parts of the world where there was... Nowhere to stay, no Holiday Inn or anything like that. So for survival, and restaurants were few and far between. So if someone were to be traveling, they would depend on that city, the strangers in that city, to stay alive. And that's why you see these things like um, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels come into Sodom 
And they just go out in the city square and sit there and wait for somebody to invite them home. And, uh, of course, Lot, being a righteous man, he did it. He was hospitable to them. Uh, you know, that, that's not something a rational person would do in five points in Birmingham today. You, know, you could sit out there all day long and somebody might ask you for change, but nobody's going to invite you home for dinner. Uh, and the reason is we have means today in this prosperous country. If we're away from home, we can stay in a hotel. We can go get food at a restaurant. So hospitality can take on different forms today. I think it includes inviting people into your, your home, which is something that I'm looking across the crowd here. A lot of you do that. But it, it's also, you know, inviting somebody to dinner at a restaurant or helping them, giving them a meal when they're sick or when they, they need some help. Um, just welcoming them in whatever way is culturally appropriate today. And it's hard. Because it's inconvenient, which is why Peter said, do it without complaint. And he wouldn't have said that if it was something that was really easy to do. So when we say, look, I'm busy. Exactly. That's why Peter said, do it without complaint. Uh, he wouldn't have to say that about something fun. You know, it's something that is difficult and challenging to do. Well, I'm obviously not going to get done with the chapter, but let me get done with this section on attitude Living for others, love, offering hospitality. The third part is service. Uh, verses 10 through 11, and this will get us to the end of the paragraph anyway. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is about service. And I like, this concept is in a, a, several places in the New Testament. But I like going to Peter for this, because the usual place we go is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is fine. 1 Corinthians 12 is about the body, and it's an analogy to the church. And we don't all have the same gifts, but all gifts are important, and they work together in the same body. The context there is spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts that have ceased. And so what I like about 1 Peter 4 and other passages like Romans 12, 4, and 5, these passages include natural gifts in the talents that God has given out. And there are two that he mentions. What are the two that he mentions here? Verse 11, what's the first one? Speaking. Speaking. Preaching, teaching, communicating with people. Does everyone have that talent? Does everyone have that gift? Uh, I think, you know, some people can develop that gift. I think some people, uh, like Andrew Kingsley, were born with that gift. You know, Andrew always frustrated me because he'd just hop up there and start speaking, and it's like he'd been doing it his whole life. 
others have to work at it more, and then some, they can work at it forever and never really develop a capacity for it. And then um, the second gift that he mentions, what is it? Also in uh, verse 11. Minister, which is, uh, in my translation, serve. Whoever serves, whoever ministers. Uh, minister is a title that we give people in my position, and that's fine because I, I'm okay with being called a servant as long as we understand that all Christians are in some sense a minister. Uh, Ephesians 4.11 says that God gave the church leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So it's the saints who do the ministry. And, and that just means service. Service is a gift. And then you think within service, there are a lot of different types of service. Like some of you are mechanically inclined. Um, the other day, Elaine, at church, I saw Travis crawling up under your car, you know, checking it out, uh, trying to see if anything was broken. Um, I, I love you and I do a lot of things for you, but I'm not going to crawl under your car because Travis is here and get him to do it, right? Uh, you know, some people are mechanically inclined, and that's very important and very helpful. Some people are more inclined towards hospitality. Some people are inclined towards giving. They have wealth. They know how to make wealth, and they can give money. You know where I'm going with this. God has given all of us different abilities to serve, and all of them are important. All of them are very important. And Peter says, you're given these to be used for others, not just for yourself. Look at it again. As you have received a gift, in other words, don't take credit for it like you're the one who developed it. As you have received it from God, use it to serve one another. And so that's where we'll stop. Just think of this as an attitude of life that Peter is giving to us. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll figure out how to cover the rest of that chapter without speeding through it and, and stay on track. Thank you for your patience and your participation this morning.